Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When someone of authority speaks, it is only natural for people of lesser status to use his words to establish their position. Politicians do it, corporate underlings do it, and Christians do it in their mishandling of the Bible. When God speaks in Scripture, his words come down from above. We plagiarize. We want to use his words in our story. We act as though God has a part to play in our life when the reverse is true. Scripture does not play a part in any human endeavor. On the contrary, it is a self-described shelter that surrounds us and covers us from above. Far from being a part of anything we set out to do or make, God is the premise of his own story. Unlike us, Mary, who represents the Pauline church in Luke, understands her place before God. Her point of reference as an enslaved person redeemed from bondage is not herself, but the exaltation of her new Roman patrician. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 to 48. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 432 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Someone recently told me, Father Mark, lots of people talk about the Bible. To which I replied, yes, that's true. Lots of people talk about the Bible in function of something else. Protestants often talk about the Bible in function of their experience, their personal experience, or their theology, which is the same thing. More institutionalized Christians, like the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, talk about the Bible in function of their tradition. Very few people talk about the Bible in function of the scriptural God who speaks in the Bible. Even when someone starts quoting the Bible and talking about the Bible, if they are making the Bible fit with a non-scriptural reference, it ceases to function as scripture. It becomes something else. It becomes a leg in another stool. The Bible is not a supporting character. The Bible is the word of God. Last week we talked about how the Spirit is both the mechanism of destruction and control. 
destruction from our human perspective, but control from the perspective of God's throne in the heavens, which is bad news for the thrones we invest in here on the earth. It's a critical point. So the Spirit dethrones Zacharias and then continues on the move from womb to womb in Luke. It has its own itinerary. It does what it wants to do. In a way, very similar to the seed in the Gospel of Mark. It goes on the move, Richard, doing what it wants to do. It doesn't use the terminology of sowing seed, but that's effectively how the Spirit is operating functionally. It's moving and it is producing. It is creating. It's a destructive, constructive force. It dismantles and it creates chaos and it imposes control. And then it creates. It's kind of like Tohu Wabohu in Genesis. The Spirit is bringing order and control, but here in Luke, it is creating the rubble and then it is bringing its control. We want to impose our control and make the Spirit fit into it, and then whatever it is we have has nothing to do with the Spirit that is being preached to us in the Gospel of Luke. It's not enough to say we're scriptural and we have the Bible and then use the word gospel and talk about scripture as an appendage or an attachment to what you want to say. You have to subject yourself, subordinate yourself to scripture. Otherwise, it won't work. God is not a bit player in your story. You know, I was talking to my mom recently, and she was talking about someone that she had met, and she was like, I can't remember what religion they were, if they were Catholic or Lutheran or something, but I do remember they said something about how we don't believe in Mary. I'm like, oh, they're Lutheran, okay? Whole churches develop over one word or one piece of Scripture that becomes then the reference, when they say we don't believe in Mary, and I had to explain to my mom, what does that mean when they say they don't believe in Mary and this kind of thing? And one time I actually read a column by a Protestant who said, you know, it's amazing. Protestants talk less about Mary than the Bible does. And that is getting on the right track as far as I'm concerned, because at least the Bible is the measuring stick of how much you should talk about something. <laughs> if the Bible's talking a lot about it, then it's probably important. And if the Bible's not talking about it, then you probably don't need to talk about it so much. And I've had experiences with people who say, oh, you know, I had this experience happen to me, but I want to look into Scripture and be able to explain how it relates. And I'm like, no, you want to do it the other way around. Read the Bible, know the Bible, and then occasionally it may relate to your experience, but it will give you a way of seeing your own experience in a way that's helpful, that's wise. In this passage, the Holy Spirit is moving from place to place, is performing action after action. As literature, this is what characters do. But the thing I find fascinating about it is that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak. It sends Gabriel to speak. 
It sends the fruit of Elizabeth's womb. It sends it to Mary, which brings it to Elizabeth, and then the child in the womb reacts to the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to see how Mary then reacts to this Spirit. But this Spirit is all around, going through all things, and is animating things. Now, I know the Orthodox are going to say, oh, that's why we pray, who art everywhere and fillest all things. No, not everywhere and fillest all things. In Scripture, in Luke chapter 1, doesn't say all things and everywhere, does it? It actually gives you a location and an action that the Spirit is taking. It isn't everywhere doing everything. In Ezekiel, God is not everywhere. God is in a chariot that can be anywhere instantaneously. It's different. Now, a modern reader might say, oh, so that's why when I saw that person going through something and I gave advice, it was probably the Holy Spirit that was working through me. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about anybody's experience. I'm not talking about anybody's life as a reference point in any case. I'm talking about the way the Holy Spirit is functioning in Luke chapter 1 as a character. I don't talk about my conversations with Hermione Granger. I don't talk about my conversations with the Holy Spirit. I can talk about Hermione Granger insofar as she is a character in the Harry Potter series. I can talk about the Holy Spirit insofar as the Holy Spirit functions in Scripture, but not in Scripture writ large, in Luke chapter 1 and in the following verses that we're going to be discussing today and in the past verses that we discussed recently. Please keep Scripture as the reference point when you want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked so many times about the Spirit being this animating force that gives life in the language of Scripture, and when this life force is directed by God in the Scripture, by the Word of God in Scripture, by the teaching of God in Scripture, then that Spirit must be a holy one. But if the person is acting contrary to the will, the word, the teaching of God, then it's an evil spirit. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Right out of the gate, let's just dispense with the discussion about soul and spirit. Soul in Greek is here, psyche, which corresponds to the Hebrew nephesh, and I'll let Richard talk about the Hebrew, but nephesh, loosely defined, is my breath and your breath, and spirit, nevma, corresponds to ruach, which, again, loosely defined, is God's breath. But the main point here is that we're not talking about soul and spirit and some lengthy collection of books going in circles about psychology and the deep meaning of these words in philosophical discourse. No. We're talking about exaltation. The word here is megalino, which anybody who sings in church should be very familiar with this word. You hear it all the time in the hymnography. So you have to exalt, to magnify, to rejoice greatly. The bottom line is Mary is emphasizing her exaltation. She is magnifying her rejoicing with her soul and her spirit. It's a kind of emphasis. And this is even a kind of formal 
poetic structure, if I'm not mistaken, Richard. Right. In Hebrew poetry, there's this very familiar pattern, which is sometimes parallelism, sometimes contradictions or things like that, but there's a relationship between the first line and the second line. And here it really seems to me that what Mary is saying is, I magnify the Lord and I rejoice in God my Savior. So what is this I? My soul and my spirit, which means they're obviously performing similar functions here. We can't draw a very clear distinction. You know, it's not saying my soul magnifies, but my spirit rejoices. That's not really what's happening. She is placing honor where honor is due. When she is told that she is blessed by Elizabeth, the first thing she does is she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. She is setting the reference point. The distinction is not between these two terms. They're very difficult. I mean, they both have to do with breathing. They both have to do with the life that we have in the body. See, he means to blow a breeze, that breath when you blow out a candle. The spirit is that breath that's keeping us alive all the time. Nefesh in Hebrew, the cognate in Hebrew is nafs. In literary Arabic, when you say myself, it's nafsi, myself. So it's I myself magnify the Lord. In the same way, we can say my voice sings to the Lord. Well, no, I'm, I'm singing to the Lord. But in that poetic way, it's my voice my lungs cry out to the Lord. My breath cries out to the Lord. She is magnifying, exalting, rejoicing, using all the wind in her lungs, whichever kind of wind it is. It's a kind of expression of this absolute giving over of this rejoicing. It reminds me a bit of when Paul talks about splankna in his letters, giving his entrails, pouring out his entrails. You're giving it your all. It's poetic emphasis. I think we can say that here. And it's important to say it because the minute you see the word soul or spirit, people get out their swimming suit and they go to the high diving board and then we get lost on the deep end of the pool. That's not what this is. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Once again, there's that very anesthetized word, bond slave. And it's not the only word that is dumbed down in translation. I'm also a little bit uncomfortable with the word humble. Because this word in Greek, tapinosis, can also be translated as humiliated. You might say humbled. I've seen other translations, of course, where we talk about the lowest state of his slave, or they say handmaiden. Again, there's that word handmaiden, which softens the blow of what we're discussing here. But in Acts, the same word is used and translated as humiliated, with reference to the Christ. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? This is terminology. So why in Acts is it understood to be humiliation, but here, oh, she's just humble and meek. I'm not comfortable with that liberty taken in translation. 
especially when we know, having heard Scripture over and over again, that the text itself is a very painful process of being humiliated through our ears as addressees and students of the story. It is a process of humiliation. The first person who is humiliated, well, at least humbled, if not humiliated, by the story is the preacher, the one reciting the story for the assembly and then trying to explain it. If you're serious and faithful to the text, you are in Luke stuck in the same position as Zacharias, completely canceled by what you're teaching, completely humbled, if not humiliated. And Mary, of course, represents the Pauline Church. Do you think we're talking about a philosophical, platonic virtue of humility? Or are we talking about someone who is humbled, who is humiliated? It's a very important question. We have to be more serious about the text, more serious about the terminology, and frankly, more attentive and more serious about the painful and difficult message of this teaching. In this passage, I'm a little uncomfortable having regard for, because really, he looked upon the humiliation of his slave. This is what the Greek is saying. Again, you know, just to add on to what you were saying, Father, I know it was in the back of your head, but you didn't say it. The Greek text and be listening to the Greek text and being sensitive to the Greek. Because when I hear he looked upon the humiliation of his slave, this starts to sound like the Exodus. This sounds like Pharaoh. He was looking at the humiliation that his people were undergoing, and once he heard their call, then he decided to respond. He looked upon this humiliated one, and that's when he decided to act. The reason why she is rejoicing is because he looked upon her humiliation. He looked upon the humiliation of his slave. This is what God does in Scripture over and over again. We want her to be called blessed because she gave birth to Jesus. But Mary doesn't seem to think so. Mary is saying the reason why everyone is going to call her blessed is because God looked upon her humiliation. That is the reason why she's blessed, is because she was humiliated and God recognized. It doesn't even say that he did anything here. Just says that he looked at it. He regarded it. He was paying attention to it. That's it. That's enough for her to rejoice. That's enough for all generations to call her blessed. From this point on, she says, from this now, as it says in Greek, all generations will call her blessed. This mechanism of God looking upon the one who is humiliated is something we see happening time and time again, and it's beautiful foreshadowing of what we're going to see at the end of Luke. We all know how Luke ends. But this is beautiful foreshadowing of how the mechanism works once we deal with the crucifixion of Jesus. The second part of verse 48, For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. In other translations, call me blessed. This 
word, makarizo, and this particular form, makariusin, only appears once in the New Testament. But again, this phrase, call me blessed or count me blessed, appears also in the epistle of James, makarizomen. And in that context, in James, it's very interesting. We count those blessed or we call those blessed who endured. So if we try to hear this use of the word blessed in context of a very specific word study, he looks on the humiliation of his slave, and then she says, Ivu, from this time forward, every generation will call blessed in the same way that we hear in James, they will be counted blessed who endured. So there's already this notion from the Pauline tradition. I know I'm referring to the letter of James, but we've covered this elsewhere. James conforms to the Pauline gospel. He's part of the Pauline canon. There's already this notion of the coming judgment and enduring under pressure through this terminology within the context of the broader New Testament story. It fits very much this heavy, heavy image of Mary representing the Pauline church as this humiliated slave enduring under pressure until the judgment for all generations. We have to keep reading back and forth in the Greek in order to make these connections, otherwise we won't have the connections. But the beauty of it is the work never stops. There's always more to be read, more to be understood, and more vocabulary to acquire. In this case, we even see these connections with James. We see the connections with Exodus. And once you understand the way that this works, what does it mean to be blessed makarios? That even refers back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. This makarios is a very important word in these specific instances where we have the low one, their fate, so to speak, upturned by this one who is the Savior. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.